that's the, I mean, the beauty of a bear market, but also really beauty of Web3, right? That you build much more in the open, that sure. there is this level of collaboration that, quite frankly, in a traditional company, right, we would have been so protective of like what we're building, right? And you don't want anyone to know. And um, I think that's that's been a big shift for us, but I, I can already, even in this kind of early stage of our journey, see see the benefits from that. This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by SafePal and AngelBlock. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. What is up, everyone? I am your host, Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to another, epi- another epic episode, hopefully watching too, uh, of Untold Stories. We're together twice a week. We get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders to truly understand how this movement came to be. I am your host, Charlie Schramm. I've been around the uh, Bitcoin and crypto space for over 10 years. I've done a lot of crazy things. And now I like to take the time and sit with some really cool people and to talk about cycles, to talk about what products they're building, some really cool stories of how they got into the space and and who they first met and all these different things. Uh, And I'm really excited to have on the show today Renee Reinsberg. Renee, you're the, the president of the Cello Foundation. Uh, and we've heard a lot of amazing things about Cello. Like, I think you guys are trying to, to introduce uh, crypto to everyone who owns a smartphone by using phone numbers as public keys. And I think like basing, uh, uh, having that as a, as a basis of helping the transition from like Web 2 to Web 3, uh, a lot of people look at that as a very positive thing. So thanks for coming on the show and, and talking to us today. Um, what did you do before before crypto? Yeah, and, and Charlie, it's it's great to be it's great to be on. Uh, looking forward to our chat. So I um, <laughs> I approached my career um, sort of by you know just trying everything out there that I thought might be interesting. So. I um, did a lot of internships even during college, trying different things, ended up working at Morgan Stanley out of grad school in fixed income capital markets, um, sort of structuring derivatives, mostly interest rates, a little bit of FX, some credit uh, every now and then. Uh, And then from there, um, you know, this was in London, going halfway around the world, lived in Latin America for a while spend time in Guatemala, Venezuela, working more sort of kind of in the social enterprise sector, also spending some time consulting for the World Bank. Um, And yeah, um, ultimately what pulled me or when I sort of looked up and asked myself what I want to do with my life, I really realized that I was happiest as an entrepreneur. And so I applied to MIT and luckily got in and had one goal, which was really just to find co-founders, find sort of the team to, you know, yeah. build, build something amazing with. And uh, I was lucky. Um, I found Merrick. Um, he and I started a company out of MIT uh, with a few other folks. Sep actually was our first advisor and later um, independent board member um, of that company. And uh, yeah, when we went back to the drawing board after selling the company and working at the acquirer for a few years, uh, we um, said, you know, this worked so well, let's, let's do something else together. And yeah. um, kind of started with a lot of ideas that ultimately led to what has now become Cello. It's such a beautiful thing. And you ended up, you know, like 
you also got an MBA out of it too. You forget that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. MBAs are, are a funny thing. I mean, I I was probably the most atypical MBA student. Um, actually, that's not true because MIT is, is a bit of a chaotic place. In a, and I mean this in a, in a really good way. You kind of just get to do what you want. Um, you know, there's obviously rules and you have to attend certain classes, but you also have, you have a lot of freedom. So I spend a lot of time at CSAIL, at the Media Lab. I you know, set in on pretty random, weird classes, but met like tons of really interesting people. And um, I mean, this is kind of how I um, met met Merrick at the time. We we took a class together, which was uh, actually the first class, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, that Sir Tim Berners-Lee was teaching. Um, and it was called Link Data Ventures. This is the original Web3 before <laughs> we all decided to call Crypto Web3. Um, and... It was really interesting because a lot of the concepts of sort of the linked data semantic web um, in terms of giving people control over their data and, you know, breaking down some of those big data silos, um, you know, that existed already back then, um, mapped to what, you know, I think a lot of us are looking for in, in Web3 now. And I think at the time, no one was that well, was, I mean, at least not the people that I was talking to was thinking about how this could be applied to value it was much more around uh, data and information. Um, but the parallels are pretty striking. And, you know, ultimately, when we kind of took a look at Ethereum and everything that was happening back when we started Cello, it was like, wow, there's a lot of parallels here. And, and that got us excited. Do you, uh, do you need to have a good grades to get to go back to school like an MBA or PhD or something like that. I, I, I just, when I went to college, I, um, into university, I was like, I had a startup and it was, it was actually my Bitcoin startup. It was my junior year, but I had another startup before my freshman year. And I just like looked at college and the college courses as like a startup that I would just, just try to barely get by. So I looked, I was like, what do I need to do to graduate and never go? And that's kind of what I did. And I graduated with my degrees, but now looking back, I wish I, I want to learn more and I want to like spend the time in school and, and meet some cool people, but I still don't have the GPA to potentially get into a good school. So I'm always wondering if like, they can look at your, like what you do and stuff like that instead of what you're, I'm not a good standardized test taker. Yeah. I mean, I think, look, I mean, tests are certainly, uh, you know, we're a part of it, but I hate tests. what I, yeah, what I really, I think with MBAs particularly, I think, especially the more entrepreneurial schools, right? They're looking for sort of, is this person passionate about something, right? Are they going to come into this program and they're they going to like really use it as an opportunity to, to do something great after. And um, I, I probably, I mean, I wasn't the obvious candidate for, for an MBA program. I, you know, studied business before and like I'd done a bunch of random things. I remember like okay. I had one, except one meeting with the career office at MIT, which I was forced to go in the first semester of the MBA. And they looked at my resume and they're like, yeah, we're going to have a very hard time placing you. You've like, you really? know, you've not held on to a job. You've done all these different things. And like, yeah, no, I'm not. It's called throwing things at the wall to see what sticks. That's what you should be doing in your 20s and 30s. I'm like, thank you. That's, you know, that's exactly. I was like, that's, that's okay. You know, Um, you know, that's, that's not why I'm here. I don't want to go to McKinsey. I don't want to go to Morgan Stanley. I, I, I tried those things and they're fun, but they're not, they're not for me. I'm, I'm, I'm happiest 
when I can sort of build with a bunch of people that are equally ambitious, crazy, whatever you want to call it. So, um, so that was fine. I mean, and, you know, like the MIT um, community, I mean, obviously super entrepreneurial. So, you know, that, I, you know, I, I felt, I felt I fit right in, but um yeah, I, I think if you want to go back to school, man, yeah, go for it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you right. know, it's, um, uh, yeah. So if we, if we, if we uh, rewind back, actually, now I was thinking about my school yeah. days, uh, if we rewind back to like the early days of Bitcoin, it's 2010. <clears throat> the financial system around the world uh, is very fractured, but it was even more fractured back then. But looking through like the only Bitcoin lens, uh, back then, uh, most people outside of the United States and really outside of Western Europe were using their cell phone companies and their, their minutes as currency, especially in Africa. When I went to Morocco and then down to South Africa, but also all and, and all these other places like Egypt and everywhere they're using. And you have like M-Pesa and all these different. But I'm looking at it just through the Bitcoin li- uh, lens, just through money. Mm-hmm. But what you've done with Celo, if you've, you've also you've created this whole you have the cello dollar, the cello euro, and the Brazilian real, like stable coins built into the network, but you have almost created the ability to have like decentralized applications being built on top of this network at the same time. Why? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. And we certainly started um, like to us, microtransactions, so micropayments, peer-to-peer payments felt like the obvious um, starting point. And we actually um, in the sort of early cello days, uh, with the team went to, to Kenya and just try to really study what was working well with MPESA. And, you know, it's used by, you know, over 90% of the population certainly has pretty big benefits, right. And its existence, but it also has shortcomings. And, and so the, the costs, right. Of like actually making transfers or, or using it are, are still, are still comparatively high. And, it hasn't, what it hasn't done is it hasn't kind of created a richer infrastructure kind of around it, right, in terms of other financial services, right? So if you, if you're an M-Pesa user, user that, like, that's sort of, you know, you being kind of just a good user. Exactly. It's not, it's not giving protocol. you, correct. It's not giving you access to credit. Absolutely. And so for us, you know, early on, like, we and that it's obviously like it works really well in Kenya, right? But it hasn't taken off in some other markets where it's been deployed, and and certainly mobile money solutions like M-Pesa don't exist in in every community country of the world. So it felt to us that you know really Web three protocols in the future would become sort of the the infrastructure for for global payments, um, and that in itself felt you know super compelling. But then also seeing it as a starting point for okay. Fast forward a few years, right? When most people in a community have a wallet, well, suddenly you can do so much more, right? Like a humanitarian organization could decide to just give everyone a basic income. Someone could come in and say, hey, you know, based on sort of the transaction data, it doesn't, it's, you know, can be like fully anonymized, right? It doesn't have to actually even tie, be tied to the individual, but could basically deploy uh, lending services on top of that. And so seeing that, given the openness, given sort of the permissionless nature of these protocols, that this could become a starting point for something much bigger, definitely was was really compelling. Um, And, you know, this is called untold stories. One story that I think, you know, it's it's fun to talk about, like, you know, what motivated us to start working on Celo. But I think the much bigger story um, 
going back to sort of the early cello days, is not actually about us three founders and sort of our ideation process and then, you know, starting something. But it's, if I go back in time, this is like late 2019. So we had, at this point, we had been working on, I mean, the starting point was we had built a wallet uh, on Ethereum just to have something that we could show people, put in front of people, get feedback and, and, and sure. see what was working, what wasn't working. And then, you know, fast forward two years, like fall 2019, we were gearing up for, for mainnet launch of what had then become the Cello protocol, you know, first uh, proof of stake EVM chain, um, you know, a lot of the, the features that have now become sort of popular in, in terms of like, you know, certainly um, the phone number mapping that, that you talked about in, in the intro. And we uh, we said, okay, there's there's a bunch of people who had at the time heard about that we were working on this. Um, and we had certainly, you know, attended conferences and, you know, so we were like, hey, you know, the network is not live yet, but why don't we just bring a bunch of people that also care about, um, you know, having a better payments infrastructure, some of these kind of additional use cases that, you know, if we squint, we could see come in the future and let's all bring them together. Um, and, you know, we basically kind of booked a farm up in, in Mendocino, Northern California and invited um, the people that we knew were, were similarly excited about this kind of stuff. And, you know, about 60, 70 people showed up. And again, this is like pre-mainnet in like the deep kind of crypto winter, right? So not like necessarily like a great, a great time for, no. for these kind of gatherings. Um, but I look back to this now and, you know, I mean, a bunch of the people from that attended who at the time were, some of them were students, some of them were working on other stuff or entrepreneurs, like having other, like more traditional web two ventures, um, ended up, you know, really like at that point saying, yeah, this cello mission, I, you know, I can get behind this and I want to be a part of building this. Um, probably the most prominent example is Impact Market, which is one of the biggest dApps on, on Cello. And, you know, for us, UBI or like the ability to really have kind of a protocol that would allow for permissionless deployment of, you know, large scale basic income social dividend programs in any community of the world, right, anywhere where there's internet, uh, to anyone with a phone, that was a that was a key driver for us starting to work on Cello, but like you know, without Marco, who ended up coming to the event and then starting Impact Market, um, I don't think we would even have the bandwidth up until now to really start thinking about how to build this right. And so, isn't that's, that beautiful? Bear market, that's bear fruit. That's the I mean, the beauty of a bear market, but also really beauty of Web three, right? That you build much more in the open. That sure. there is this level of collaboration that. Quite frankly, in a traditional company, right, we would have been so protective of like what we're building, right, and you don't want anyone to know. And um, I think that's that's been a big shift for us. But I, I can already, even in this kind of early stage of our journey, see see the benefits from that. Hey guys, I want to take a second and talk to you about our newest sponsor, AngelBlock.io. It's about that time in the bear market that we actually have to take a look at which projects have taken the do's and the don'ts from all the previous waves, bull and bear markets that we've had and built out real decentralized projects that are gonna be successful and take this blockchain and crypto world out we're into the next level. 
Traditional fundraising is very clunky and traditional investing in crypto is very clunky as well. I know, I'm a VC at Drew Adventures. AngelBlock is really, really cool and it's a new DeFi protocol that's solving not only the issues of fundraising for digital assets, but more compliance, transparency, real decentralization. They have on-chain governance, staking, lending, secondary marketplaces for the trading of tokens, all these different ways that you can actually interact with the startup and the token and the project that you're actually investing in. There's a whole community here. AngelBlock is that new compliant platform that's safe and easy to use in order to weed out all the scams. It's so cool. It's built on top of Ethereum, but it's multi-chain by design. <clears throat> They'll also be involved in the mentoring process. There's a phenomenal community that AngelBlock has built. It doesn't cost anything. Go check out the community. Go to their website, angelblock.io. Sign up to their email to stay up to date. You'll have a chance to win some really cool AngelBlock NFTs. And this is only for Untold Stories listeners. Thank you, guys. Uh, it's really it's really exciting and and talking about the, the founding and, and the early stories and everything like that. And now that we're in the same type of bear market, and people are always are asking, you know, retail is always last. So, like, is the world recession going to be the last thing that that affects? Because the crypto bear market, we've been going through it for like over a year now. So, you know, on on that cycle thought process, uh, you and your team, what are you guys building and launching now, and for who? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. So, and um, I forget. I think it was uh, Katie Hahn. Was I saw recently um, say this on Bloomberg, um, and she has been an early backer of Cello and has become a okay. brand over over this journey. And she, I think, I think she said something very important. This is this is not like other bear markets in a sense that you know it's coming alongside a major global, um, you know. Um, you know, kind of crisis, um, both economically and then, you know, we have we have a war in Ukraine, right? So yeah. it's really, um, yes, there are definitely parallels, but also this is a this is a unique this is a unique um, unique cycle. And so, I think the um, conversations that I have with founders in the ecosystem is okay. You know, really try to get as lean as possible. You know, and you know, a lot of teams have really um hunkered down deeply yes. focused on product right making kind of like using this kind of to iterate on the product experience uh not getting distracted right and and basically being ready for i think when the next cycle comes right it's it's likely that this will be the one that really pushes us into mass adoption i think we we got close in the last one um in terms of maybe the yeah, awareness yeah. right i think certainly nfts everybody like knows what an nft is which is it's amazing, right? In terms of like getting getting awareness for for a technology and 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 a product, and I think a lot of people have experienced NFTs. Um, but I think that's still like you know, there's still a few steps more. I think that we want people to kind of go in terms of being very just kind of you know feeling very good about using an uncustodial wallet, right? And maybe like interacting with with some protocols. And I think that's. Uh, that's something that uh, when I see a lot of teams in this in this bear market, they're kind of looking, okay, how do we abstract some of the stuff away and really create user experiences that just make that 
so easy, right? And in a way, like, um, not just compete with sort of traditional Web2 experiences, but really leapfrog because in many markets, you know, you don't even have, um, say, like a good a good lending um, experience, right? So so that, that to me is, I think, one thing. Um, I, I do, you know, I like you asked about the macro um, environment. Yeah. I think um, to me, what, what has been interesting in this bear market too, and this is different from last time. Last time, I mean, I don't know, were there actually any applications that, you know, no, you could not use? Really. <laughs> not really, right? So um, it, it was, it was, but it was, it was kind it was of like- hypothetical. Yeah. Whereas this time, I mean, we were seeing this, right? I mean, like I just mentioned impact market, right? I mean, we have- a lot of uh, projects that are, you know, that have started serving real people in this last cycle. And, you know, those real people still want to consume those, you know, products, right? So whatever, whatever markets like cycle we're in from a crypto prices perspective, uh, that doesn't uh, sort of temper down, you know, there's people often like don't even necessarily know or care that it's crypto under the hood, um, but it's, it's just, it's kind of used as sort of an infrastructure to, uh, to facilitate uh, the applications that people have launched, right? And another example yeah. would be something like Ethic Hub, which is offering, you know, basically giving small scale farmers access to uh, kind of the global kind of, you know, uh, loan market, right? And and gives them, give them financing. Or you could look at a lot of the stuff that's happening in refi with uh, carbon offsets, right? Tokenized carbon offsets, bringing those on chain, having companies you know think about like instead of going sort of through traditional agents otc markets um having a lot more transparency and getting those uh directly on chain and so that stuff is all so not tied to like the ups and downs of like where's bitcoin where's eth today where's where's cello trading right but that's that's actually that has real utility uh to to the users do you think the the whole token aspect of these things will probably go back into the very niche world uh potentially because using a token is like a way to onboard users or to like teach people or have them touch crypto may not be something that we're really doing anymore. Now it's like hey, we're building products and services for the real world now. And like you said, you can do really cool things with humanitarian, you can work with with hurricanes. We're talking about you mentioned uh, the invasion of Ukraine. We had the, U the the founder of the Ukraine mm -hmm. DAO on my show a few episodes ago. So it's like we're really building out some really cool things for the industry. It's just when from the time that Bitcoin launched up until 2020, the world, there was no reason for people to keep cash in their bank accounts. Interest rates were low and people were willing to invest more in riskier assets because there was nowhere else to keep money. Now we have to really pull our pants up and have our products and services compete with the traditional products and services that people are already used to using. So it's now it's like, hey, M-Pesa is the way we're doing it and Celo is cool, but now it needs to be, Celo needs to be able to compete with M-Pesa, whoever you're competing with, and to be better than and build on top of the blockchain. Absolutely. And, you know, those worlds are blending too, right? I mean, we have major telcos and you know we we spend a lot of time with telcos given the mobile first approach and a lot of the features right i think play really into also how telcos are thinking about how sure. they're entering web3 and you know dutch telecom has been an early backer is running validators uh, on the cell network right and 
um, whether it's them or uh, an organization like Kickstarter who announced that they want to decentralize, right? And they also picked Celo as a chain. So I'm, I'm close to, to that as another example where it's no longer necessarily even just like some upstart kind of small um, startup has to figure out how to compete with, you know, or like have sort of the Web3 version of the Kickstarter, but it's Kickstarter itself is basically working on, on, on creating the protocols, right? That um, can open uh, can open up sort of opportunities and, and bring this to much to many more people around the world. And I think that's that's also I think different from last cycle where we certainly had headlines in the last cycle of big corporations entering Web3, but for the most part, those have state headlines, right? And and this time around, there's um, there's engineering teams, there's you know uh, really this has become a topic of discussion at at the C level um, at boards, you know, and I think that um, makes sense too, right? I mean, technology is much further. We have on and off ramps in many more markets, it's become a lot easier to use wallets, right? So I think from where we are in sort of the, the cycle for the technology too, this is um, this is a really interesting time. Um, but with that said, um, it's interesting because I think that's a lot when we kind of map what are the things that are going to work and what are the use cases, right? We come at it with our thinking of, oh, like, what's a better M-Pesa going to look like, right? And or what's going to be, um, you know, how do you kind of provide a better lending experience? But then you also have these completely new type of products, right? Or experiences which don't even exist today. And um, I think that's where, I think that's really the opportunity for a lot of, um, for a lot of new projects, right? To kind of go and, and say, hey, look, you know, why shouldn't someone in um yeah you know anywhere in the world be able to create a digital good right and like through that kind of make a living right it could be could be art could be music right could be uh that's i think that's something that until now just people weren't even thinking about that right that was just so far from what's possible uh with the existing tech stack Guys, I am so excited to talk about our newest presenting sponsor, SafePal. SafePal is an all-in-one solution. You got a beautiful hardware wallet. You have this amazing fireproof cipher. You got a mobile wallet, an extension wallet similar to MetaMask. You're talking about an all-in-one solution for all of your crypto needs. Founded in 2018, SafePal is a Binance Labs-backed, Singapore-based company, uh, the venture arm, where their mission is to make crypto secure and simple for everyone. You got cross-chain swapping, trading services, and more. SafePal supports over 40 different blockchains. I mean, check this out. Look at this. If you back up your private seed in this beautiful metal SafePal backup here and you keep it in your safe, fires or water or nothing degrading over time, you should not be backing up your crypto on pieces of paper. I mean, look at this. Look at the S1 here. It's so cool. This is the hardware wallet you're talking. I'm used to using the Trezor or the Ledger wallet, but SafePal is a lot better because not only do you get the hardware wallet and the backup cipher, but you also get the mobile wallet, the uh, extension on your Google Chrome or whatever Firefox you use. So it all works together. You don't have to worry about man in the middle attacks and everything like that. You can go to safepal.com, use the coupon code Charlie, and you'll get any of these amazing products the extension wallet is free, the mobile wallet is free, the hardware wallet and the backup 
are really, really well priced. It's all super safe and secure. And I love it. I mean, there's no other way you should be using your crypto than SafePal. It's crazy. I, I It's just like I'm looking up these metrics here, but it's uh, I'm th constantly thinking from like a U.S. perspective. And really, you're you're working in in uh, in some of these emerging uh, countries and some really not emerging countries, some like, you know, uh, a countries with a huge with a very high. Uh, 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 what do they call it? Like the development index, the human development mm -hmm. index, like the, you know, the quality of life, one country to the next, like you're working in something like it's like in Kenya, you brought that up 90%. I think it's 90% crypto adoption where in the United States, it's like so mm -hmm. much lower. So it's yeah. like just another thing that, that myself and like a Western country that I'm taking for granted is that we're starting to see fractures now in 2022 of you know the western financial systems we're seeing it with the energy prices you see with the uk you know the uk pension fund needs to get re reinsured and backstop there's some like huge cracks like if you if the if the if the world's financial system was a seawall you'd be you'd be like checking some of these cracks and holes right now so and it and you're built you're out there building out the technologies for everyone else so i really uh, uh hats off to you because um, you're probably seeing huge adoption rates all over the world. Yeah, I, I will say, look, uh, definitely you're right that there's um, what's driving adoption for these real world use cases often is like, hey, there's there's no other alternative right now, right? I couldn't even get a loan if I went to a bank. And so um, it makes sense that in some of these markets, in a way, crypto is, you know, is kind of leapfrogging sort of the traditional financial system or mobile applications. And, um, but, you know, I think the important piece here is that it kind of needs to be global, right? I think the, um, this sort of notion of, hey, let's just build for the global South um, is, is a little harder um, to, to pull off, right? Because I think that connectivity between global North and South is important, right? You would wanna, you wanna be able that if someone you know, and then you, know, you can exactly, yeah, you want to be able to send money from the US to Brazil, right? And Kenya and should happen in, in a couple of seconds and it should cost less than a cent. And that's possible today, right? But if you, if you, if you only focus on like the global south, I think you, you end up in a, in a less optimal uh, setup, right? And so a lot of the projects or, you know, yeah, that, that we see, they, they often will focus on a few markets to kick things off, but then really thanks to kind of Web3, right? Like they, and and also kind of all the the other projects and, and sort of, yeah, members of sort of the, the community, right? That provide say on and off ramps in various markets, right? You can actually, with a very small team, launch a global product, right? Whether that's in, in payments. That's my favorite and, and part in, of globalization yeah. right there is that like, you don't have to look for your, I take that for granted. Don't have to, like when you're starting a new company, in crypto or in tech or whatever, you don't have to like look for people in your city. You have the whole world at your disposal. Yeah. And that's that's a that's an advantage too, right? Because you still you want the person who is on the ground, right? In Colombia. I mean, I'm just thinking of a project that comes to head. I just was talking to the founder last week, and and he is in Colombia. He's building a lending product for Venezuelan refugees who because they're, you know, like yeah, and they, they have do? like they had amazing, you know, financial credit scores in Venezuela, but guess what? In Colombia, they start at zero, right? And so for them, like, yeah, they're, 
you know, this is kind of the only way really, right? And, and they're, they want to build businesses, right? They want to be members of society. And, um, but without sort we of the underground, it would it'd be very hard, be very hard to launch that kind of product from, you know, an office in, in South Park, San Francisco, right? Or, um, or, or Brooklyn, New York, right? You have to be on the ground. You have to be in Bogota. You have to be there. You have to meet the people. And that's, that's the beauty, right? You can, you can do that while still plugging into sort of that global community network. And I think that's, that's an often overlooked, I think, uh, factor as well. I think we, we often, we talk about Web3 being so global, but it only works because we have founders that are, that really are everywhere, right? That are in the markets. And, one thing that I, so I'm at, you mentioned this thing, I'm at the Seller Foundation, right? And at the Seller Foundation, one of our, I mean, the, the big thing is like, how do we support people in the ecosystem? And over time, you want to get out of the way, right? It's kind of like similar to Ethereum Foundation, like this theory of subtraction, right? We don't want to like have this important role, but we want to just help people kind of do their thing, right? And, and support them as best as we can. And one thing that's from the beginning was a big focus was how do we bring more capital to to like Nairobi, right? To Bogota, to Manila, to Buenos Aires, right? And I think what we started doing was initially just, you know, basically wrote LP checks into funds that are, you know, in those countries. Um, but but more recently, we've become a little bit more <laughs> aggressive in the sense that we, we're going out there and we're really trying to talk to all I the like investors, that. all the funds, and we're saying, hey, look, you know, and I was just last week, I was at this kind of big gathering of impact investors in, in Den Haag. It's like, you know, the, the people there may collectively manage like a trillion dollars, right? And it's it's some of the familiar names uh, that then also have impact funds and some more kind of just dedicated impact funds. But for them to make the leap into Web3, that's still a big hurdle, right? Because of course it them, is. It's the biggest the technology, hurdle It's but, new, um... it's unknown. They read the headlines, right? And so... But to me, that's the big opportunity, right? If we start seeing some of that capital flowing into the projects, right, that are on the ground, having a direct impact, no middleman, full transparency, right? That's how we, that's how we, I think, that's when we start really delivering against the initial promise of, of what I agree. Well, Renee, I, sorry to cut you short, but um, <laughs> it's all the time we have for today. Renee Reinsberg, I really appreciate you taking the time and coming on Untold Stories from the Cello Foundation. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Charlie. Good talking. I'll see you later.